is Shelley McCarran, and I get to read our scripture today. It's Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Uh, my name is Perry. I'm one of the pastors at the Boulder campus. It's great to be with you again. I was here a few weeks ago when we did Revelation chapter 4. Pastor Zach is away from preaching, so I get to be with you here today as we open up to Revelation chapters 10 and 11. I would invite you to go ahead and turn there now. Well, I don't know what it was for you, but for me, it was either a fighter pilot or a pro athlete. My elementary school years and my middle school years were spent in the 80s. So the people who had a lot of inspiration to me were named Maverick, Jordan, and Elway. They were the ones I looked up to. And isn't youth fun? The, the time of our lives where we can look off at the future that is so far away. It just seems like life is full of endless possibilities of what we might become. Well, as the future came closer into the present, I had to reevaluate some of my plans for the future. I had, it turns out that a lack of athletic ability, for example, wasn't too helpful in me reaching my dreams. Oftentimes, we do have to readjust our plan for the future as it gets closer to us. But these words that we just read from Revelation chapter 4 are different. This is a picture of the future, but it's God's picture for the future. And God's future is guaranteed. We can bet our lives that this is exactly what the future has in store for us. And as such, it's guaranteed so it does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on us to bring it about, to make it happen. But it does demand of us. I know that's a strong word, but God's future, even though it doesn't depend on us, does demand of us. And this morning in Revelation 10 and 11, we're going to see what that demand of God looks like. If we are followers of Christ, longing for that future, when his kingdom comes, when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, if that's our hope, then there's a demand placed on our lives in the present. So let's dig into Revelation chapter 10 as we begin to look at what this looks like for our lives as we await God's future. It starts off this way. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. 
He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Okay, let's pause right there. Just to orient ourselves to what's going on in this book, it might be helpful to remind ourselves that this all flows out of Revelation chapters 4 and 5, that throne room scene where the first mighty angel that we were introduced to had a scroll and he said, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? That's where we then have been in these past few weeks where we've looked at the breaking of these seven seals of the scroll, the seven judgments. And you might remember that in between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was an interruption. That's where John saw the 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, or rather I should say he heard that there were 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And then he, he turned and what he actually saw though was a vast multitude beyond the ability to count from every tongue, tribe, and language. These are people who were marked with God's seal, protected by God. And then we had the seventh seal, which unleashed the seven trumpets. And we've gone through now six of those seven trumpets. And this morning, we should expect to be right at that seventh trumpet. But instead, we read of another mighty angel. There's a symmetry between these sets of seven judgments so that there's a break between the sixth and the seventh. And that's where we are this morning. In that second set of the seven judgments, of the the. The third um, set will be off in the future of Revelation that we'll get to in a little bit. But we're in the middle of the second set of seven, and we should be expecting the seventh trumpet, but instead we read about this mighty angel. The mighty angel is described as being wrapped in a, a cloud with a rainbow over his head, a face like a sun, legs like pillars of fire. This is the description that fits a mighty angel, but it also has some of the reminders of what the throne room is like. The fact that the angel comes with a rainbow and has this fire about him, those are descriptions from the throne room so that the credentials of this angel are unmistakable. This angel is straight out of God's presence, straight out of the throne room of heaven. And it says that he has a little scroll open in his hand. Of course, any scroll would appear little in the hand of an angel who's able to stand with one foot on the sea and the other foot on the land, probably just symbolic of this angel's dominion over both of them. And the volume is turned up because this isn't just something to behold with our eyes, but John hears with his ears as the angel sounds out with a mighty roar like a lion. And also he hears the voice of the seven thunders. John's prepared to write down what he hears, but instead a voice from heaven tells him not to do it. It says, do not write down what you've heard. Seal it up. It's not appropriate to share this message, apparently. Why would that be the case? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that. But here's a couple of possibilities. From the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel has a scroll that he's told to seal up and not to present it yet because the time of its unfulfillment is far off into the future. So this isn't like it's without precedent. We might remember the Apostle Paul's words at the end of 2 Corinthians when Paul had his own heavenly vision and Paul was told that, there, that he heard things that cannot be told. 
But the reason for this could be attributed to that, that there are just simply divine mysteries that are outside of our ability to know or outside of God's desire for us to know about. But it could be also that the answer to the question is actually found in what comes next. So let's keep reading. In verse 5, it says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the, of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, no more delay. That could be the reason why John is prohibited from writing down what he heard and what he understood, but prohibited from sharing it because there's no more delay. That's an ironic statement in a chapter where we're delaying the seventh trumpet because of this whole scene with the mighty angel. But the whole point is that God's will is unfolding and there's no pulling it back. There's no stopping it. God's will is going to be fulfilled and the time is now for it to happen. So he's told there would be no more delay and that God is revealing his will just as he has done all throughout history. Amos 3 verse 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. It doesn't rem- that doesn't mean that God reveals all of his will to the prophets, but he reveals to us what we need to know about his will, about his plan for all of history. It says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What in the world is going on here? So John is prohibited by the voice from heaven from writing down what he heard because he doesn't want it to be told to the churches. He doesn't want to delay anything. But yet he's given another message to share. And it's this message that's on the little scroll. It may sound familiar to it that John is told to take this and eat it. That's something from the Old Testament. Back in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is also told to eat the scroll. And it's a, it was a scroll that was written on both sides with words of lamentation, with woe. And it was, it was bitter in, to Ezekiel as well, but sweet in his mouth. This is God's word that has the words of life, the words of hope, the words of wisdom. In that way, it's very sweet to us. But when God's word also contains a word of judgment, that is a word that's bitter. It does not sit well in our stomach at that point. But both are true of God's word. And we might just wonder, what is this scroll? Some see it as the scroll from Revelation chapter 5, the one that was previously sealed with those seven seals. Some take it to be another scroll, perhaps the words that we'll read in chapter 11 in just a moment. Either way, though, I think the most important point is not what is on the scroll, but who the scroll is from. 
The scroll is from this mighty angel who is straight out of the throne room of heaven. The scroll is the scroll that God wants. The voice from heaven has spoken that God wants John to have, to eat it, to put down his pen and paper, as one commentator puts it, and pick up a knife and fork so that he might chew on it, so that he might absorb it into his body, let it metabolize inside of him, so that he can share it and present it. In other words, this scroll, this message from God, has the authority of God behind it. That is the most important feature that we are to see about this scroll. That this message from God bears the authority of God behind it. And with that message comes a mission too. John is told to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. If we're paying attention, we might be a little bit confused right now. And not just by all of the incredible imagery that we see, but why would John be told to prophesy to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings? John is in probably an exile on this island called Patmos. And he's writing this letter to the seven churches that are in Asia that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. How is John to go to all of these other places to prophesy? And what about the seven churches? See, I think what's actually going on here, and what we'll see in just a moment in chapter 11, is that the whole purpose of this vision is so the churches would see that this message is from the authority of God. That this mission that John has been told about to prophesy is actually a mission for them to take upon themselves. That they are the ones who are to go out and take this authoritative word from God, this mission, and to go out and bear the authority of God as they serve as witnesses themselves. This chapter is all about the authority of God and God calls the churches to be witnesses with all the authority of heaven. Authority is a really big deal. We could be entry-level employees at a company and not even be entrusted to speak up in a meeting. But if we are followers of Jesus, we have been given the authority to speak up in front of the world. God has given us his authority to serve as his witnesses, to represent him on earth. Remember Jesus' words that are recorded in Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Remember Luke and how he records in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus said, you will receive the Holy Spirit from on high, power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We dare not launch out into ministry without the authority of God. But since we have the authority of God, we dare not delay in the ministry of God that he has called us to. This chapter is all about how we are to serve as the church as witnesses under the authority of God. So what does that actually look like for our lives? Well, chapter 11 helps fill out the picture even more. John continues and says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. 
for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Clear? Everything clear? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, this has a lot of complex imagery. Ezekiel, once again, is an example of someone who was told to measure in the Old Testament. He was told to measure the temple. And in the Bible, whenever somebody is told to measure something, it's either for its destruction or for its preservation. And here it's clear in the context that we're talking about the preservation here. That it's as though John is to go out and and to mark everything, to, to measure everything, to say this, every single stone that you see, every single person that you see accounted for here will be preserved. Every single stone will be protected. Not one thing will be harmed that you measure here. And some see this as a literal temple, perhaps one that will be rebuilt in the future, that that's what this is pointing to. We should remember, though, that the New Testament image of the temple of God is different than a physical structure. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The people of God in the New Testament take on this image of the temple of God. I think this is symbolic language for the fact that God's people, the church, are preserved and protected for this time period of 42 months. But notice what's not protected. It's the courtyard. The courtyard is where the nations trample. trample. That is, that's a place where they are not to measure. John is not to, to mark that off as a place where God is going to preserve it in the same way. Why? Because the nations are there. The, the nations are the place where God's judgments are being unfolded. So altogether, this is an image of the same thing from two different perspectives. This is what life looks like between the first and the second comings of Jesus, that there is a protection that is over God's people during that period. But at the same time, the place of witness where the nations trample is not protected in that same way. And it's said it's described as a period of 42 months. And then we read about 1,260 days. You take 40 times 30, you get 1,260. It's 42, sorry, times 30, you get 1,260. The book of Daniel also has a reference like this in chapters 7 and 12 to time, times, and half a time. 42 months is three and a half years. Time, if that's one year, times if that's two more years, and then half would be three and a half as well. I think this is just a numerical representation of the time again between the first and the second comings of Christ. It's the time when God's people will enjoy protection, spiritual protection over their lives, but also a time of witness out in the courtyard where the nations trample. Let's keep reading. It says, and the angel... Sorry, wrong page here. Let me turn back over. It says, Then these two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone would harm them, we read on how fire pours out of the mouth and on and on about all of the protective ways. These two olive trees and two lampstands, though, goes back to imagery that's in Zechariah chapter 4. Olive trees 
represent the anointing that a king and a governor and a high priest would receive. And the, the anointing itself is an anointing with oil that's representative of God's spirit coming upon them. The high priest and the king would receive this to show that these people specifically would enjoy God's spirit being poured out upon them so they can govern and so they can serve in their capacity as the priest in a way that is from God's spirit, enabled by his power. So what have we seen of the the lampstands in Revelation so far? What do they represent? They're the churches. So altogether, this is another way of just saying that these two witnesses are the spirit-filled churches, the people of God, and that, that they are the ones who stand before the Lord of all the earth, and they are protected. But we should just understand what this promise does and does not mean. The witness of the church is protected. There's a spiritual protection over God's people. But at the same time, we should not think that this is an individual promise to each individual believer of physical protection. Remember back in chapter 2 when we read the message to the church in Pergamum. There was a man there named Antipas who was called a faithful witness, but who had been killed for his witness. Remember back In chapter 6, verse 9, when we were looking at the fifth seal, and there were the souls of those who were under the altar there. And there we read that they were the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And then it also says in that same seal that there would be more fellow servants and their brothers who would be added to their numbers. God's protection is not the promise of physical protection over individual lives during this age. But it is the promise that our witness will be protected and that we will all be protected spiritually. What does that spiritual protection look like? We'll see that in just a minute. But the language John uses to describe these two witnesses and their power is intentionally set to remind us of Elijah and Moses in the Old Testament. When we read about these miraculous things that they're able to perform, these are the very kinds of things that Moses and Elijah did. The witness of the church is to take up that same mantle that carries on the same kind of ministry of prophesying, of witnessing to the faithful actions of God, to the call to repent, to the call to align our lives with his will and that God will spiritually and sometimes supernaturally preserve us through that so that his witness would go out and be completed. But we read in verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to disappoint you right now. I'm not going to say anything about the beast. But come back in the next few weeks and we will say plenty about the beast because the beast is just making its first appearance on the stage right now. But it will show up plenty in these coming weeks. But we see that the beast rises and murders these witnesses. Says that their bodies lie in the streets of this great city. 
In the Old Testament, the city of Nineveh was referred to as the great city, the city that was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. We see other references here for Sodom, for Egypt, which isn't even a city, and the city where the Lord was crucified. Of course, making us think of Jerusalem. These other references make us think of a city that isn't even in existence, even in John's day, with Sodom. What's going on here? This is any city that sets itself up against the rule and the reign of Christ. This is any city that resists God's will. Any place where God, where the people on earth trample, this is the courtyard. This is the place where the nations are reigning and ruling and resisting the one true God. And it says that instead of throwing a funeral, instead of throwing a celebration of life for these witnesses, there's a celebration of death. Can you imagine living in a world where people would celebrate the demise of the church? Can you imagine living in a world where people would rejoice when a church building is converted into some kind of a community or fitness center? Can you imagine living in a world where people would delight in Christian voices being silenced in the public square? Let me ask you, Questions from a different angle, though. Is our witness known out in the courtyard? Do people know our witness, our testimony in the great city? We live in a world where, in a society where the advice given to believers is just keep your beliefs private. My friends, can I just say this morning, though, Privately held beliefs are not a witness. Privately held beliefs do not get you killed in the streets. Okay, this is vivid imagery. This is heavy stuff. But the question is, really, is our witness something that we're actually declaring? Is it something that we're living out in our, in our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, in our words spoken from our mouth? Because that's what we see portrayed here. John says, But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The church is assured of God's spiritual protection. Three and a half days is likely just playing on the same motif where we saw 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time where those refer to three and a half years. And here we see three and a half days is the amount of time that these witnesses are dead. Three and a half is just a number that continues that on and is so close to the actual time of Jesus' death that we can't help but associate the example from the witnesses with the example of Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Even in death, we witness. So let's just step back for a second. As we think about chapter 10 and what we've read so far in chapter 11, we see that we, we witness as the church with the authority of God behind us. It's the authority that's embedded in the message. And it's the authority that comes with his, his mission for us to be a witness, to prophesy, to tell people the truth of his will. So we have his authority, but we also enjoy and are sustained by his protection over our lives as we witness. We witness as a church together collectively, and we know that that's the area that's been marked. That's the area that's been preserved because God is protecting us so that our mission as witnesses might be carried out and fulfilled. So we witness, and we witness now because it's the present. When the future comes and fully invades the present, we will no longer witness. This is something for today. We can only carry this out in this moment. Once the future arrives, there will be no more witnessing. What a glorious day that will be because God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we're not there yet and the opportunity in front of us right now, the demand of God in front of us right now is that we would be his witnesses until that comes. And in the language of John, that is the seventh trumpet. Let's read that. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and notice it stops. There is no more who is to come because the the future has fully invaded the present at this moment. There is no more present in the same way because God's future has come. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged out in that courtyard, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And in case you're wondering whether it's worth it to witness and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God is bringing his justice. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. It's remarkable that this closes out with an open temple and we see the Ark of God's Covenant which represents God's faithfulness across the centuries, across the ages. The Ark of the Covenant goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Even before that, to the promise given to Abraham to bless the whole families of the world, blessing those who would bless him and cursing those who would curse him. And then the people of Israel being formed out of Abraham's line. This is a picture of God's faithfulness culminated in Christ's return where he brings the kingdom of heaven to this world 
and he shall reign forever and ever. What a glorious picture that motivates our witness. That's the intention behind it, that it would motivate our witness and give us a hope knowing that we are witness and testifying to something that is guaranteed because this is God's future, not a future that we would devise on our own or try to develop and make happen on our own. But this is God's guaranteed future for all of us. But in the present, he's given us a purpose right now to serve as his witnesses. The greatest pursuit of our lives is to witness to the power and the purposes of God. Remember Paul, what he said in Romans, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. We witness to the power of God. And we witness to his purposes, that God's kingdom is coming, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If that doesn't get us excited, then we're missing something. This is, this is what God is doing. So, My friends, we know the future. So let's use the present to witness to the power and the purposes of God. Let's ask for his help. Father, thank you for your word that reveals so much to us, even, even though there are certainly mysterious things in this book that leave us baffled. But Father, thank you for revealing your word to us, your will to us, so that we would know, God, what you have in store for all of history. I pray for each one of us in this room this morning that this would give us great hope, the hope to be courageous in this present day, Lord, to declare the truth of who you are, to declare your promises, Lord, to declare your call to righteousness, to declare your call to justice. Father, may we be good witnesses, empowered by your spirit, Lord, so that we might be able to say and do things that we could never do in our own strength, Lord. We have the confidence of your authority behind us. Father, we pray for the power of your spirit inside of us. I ask this all for your glory, Lord, and in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.